Well, our sermon text for this morning comes from Philippians chapter 4, so if you would please turn there. You can find this on page 982 in your pew Bibles. Hear now the word of our Lord. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Iodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Standing firm, as Paul describes throughout the book of Philippians, is a call to church unity, to standing together in the gospel. And this call to church unity is an essential consequence of believing the gospel message. That to say that we are Christians saved by grace unto God the Father necessarily requires an outflowing of unity and harmony together within the church. This is one of the main themes, the main points of the book of Philippians. From Paul's opening prayer until here in chapter 4, he has been singing the song of joy in the Lord and that joy resulting in the oneness of the saints. So as we begin in this text this morning, let me just offer a disclosure. Uh, Pastor Jonathan did not ask me to preach this text. I do not know hardly any of you, any relational dynamics in this church. So there is no subtext in this text this morning, right? So if you hear this message of gospel reconciliation and you feel a conviction, just know that is a word from the Lord, not your pastor paying me to prod you guys. Okay, so get that out of the way. But, but here we do see from Paul, as he entreats these dear sisters, that there is a necessary unity that comes from believing the gospel. And I'm simply bringing this text to us this morning because recently preached it at Good Shepherd. People thought it wasn't half bad and it wasn't 45 minutes long. So I figured you guys would appreciate that. So again, here we come to chapter 4. Paul is wrapping up three plus chapters of calls towards unity, to standing firm together in Christ. And he ends this discussion of unity by addressing these two women Specifically, Iodia and Syntyche. And it's, and it's worth us asking for a moment if this constant repetition throughout the book of Philippians isn't, 
itself meant to teach us something. Even before we hear about these two sisters, if we're meant to learn about the importance of unity from Paul spending so much time commanding the church to pursue it. Because if, if this text were simply just about two women having a disagreement, then likely Paul would have spent three chapters instructing them on something different. But the fact that this is one of the central themes throughout the book of Philippians tells us that there is much more at stake within the church than a few relationships. You see, the disunity that is so prevalent within the Philippian church is actually having a detrimental effect upon the church. A detrimental effect upon the church's mission, upon the church's peace with one another, and a detrimental effect upon the church's testimony of what it proclaims Jesus has truly done for them. This is much more than two people who need to get along. There are vast implications for how the church lives together in community. Because if we say that the Christian faith is all about undeserved forgiveness and being saved by grace, apart from our works, because the God of the universe humbled himself and sent his Son, that he suffered and died, died a death on a cross, that we may be his people, that we may live to be with him. And we respond to all of that grace, all of that undeserved kindness, by showing bitterness and resentment and unforgiveness and cynicism towards one another, we're saying we don't actually think the gospel is the most important thing within the church. We're saying that my happiness, my peace, my vindication is the most important thing in the church. So we see that getting unity correct is a non-negotiable for the people of God. For it demonstrates what we declare about the gospel of Christ. And unity is also a non-negotiable for these two sisters that they needed to be reminded of this fact. Now as we think about Paul's exhortation, commentators are divided on whether or not this was the main reason that Paul even wrote the letter in the first place. That, that this is the climax of all that Paul has been saying. Or whether this address to them is sort of an afterthought. If Paul's been thinking about church unity and decided to include this instruction for these sisters. I'm inclined to lean towards the former. Though there's certainly other needs that Paul addresses in this letter. This wasn't his only purpose for writing, but it was one of the most important purposes for writing. It's the fact that he ends this discourse on unity by addressing the sisters. The fact that he addresses them by name 
tells us that this was a very serious matter that Paul wanted to address directly to them. He, he wanted to wake them up and, and bring to mind all that he had just said and how it applies to them. And so as we listen to God's word this morning, let this be a reminder to us that this ought to be a direct instruction to us of how we ought to apply God's word. Don't know if you've ever fallen into this trap of listening to a sermon or reading your Bible with somebody else in mind, thinking, oh, they, they really, I hope they're listening right now. Some spouses maybe nudging each other, parents nudging children. Maybe you're thinking, I, I really hope so-and-so listens to this. Let us not fall into that trap this morning. This is not a word for your opponents, for those you disagree with. This is a word for you. God wants to teach you. So that, that is my challenge. We don't listen to this with somebody else's ears. That we ask God where he wants to show us our need for repentance, our need for sanctification. So as we think about conflict within the church and, and approaching one another to resolve that conflict, I simply want this morning to highlight four ways that Paul approaches this conflict between Iodia and Syntyche. And hopefully that will be instructive for us of how we approach one another. So first, we see that Paul in this instruction leads with love. Again, one more time, he reminds the church of their beloved status, that they're beloved by the Lord. Immediately preceding this text in chapter 3, Paul reminds us that we're citizens of heaven, that we're awaiting our Savior, that he's going to come and, and transform our lowly bodies to be like him. So we're, we're beloved by God. And then Paul also reminds the Philippians that they are beloved by him. They're his brothers and sisters. Earlier in the book, he reminds them that they're his joyful partners in the gospel. Paul has gone out of his way time and again to remind them of his deep love and affection for these brothers and sisters. And even in this text, we, we can lose some of the nuance of what Paul is saying. Thinks he, he calls them his crown, his reward. But what's Paul doing there? Well, he's, he's looking ahead to their heavenly, eternal status together. Paul's saying that when they all arrive in heaven, that there is going to be much rejoicing. Paul is going to be celebrating over the work that God has done within the Philippian church, over these brothers and sisters, these men and women that he has ministered to faithfully year after year after year, giving up even his life for them. And he's going to rejoice over them for all of eternity because God has brought them safely home. He's looking forward with them. He's demonstrating his commitment to them. He's not here issuing an ultimatum that you all need to get it together or else. I'm just done with you. 
No, he reminds them, oh, you're, you're my beloved. You're my crown. We're pursuing this unity together into eternity. This is a pastoral instruction to God's people. He's not going to turn his back on them, even in the difficult situations. And as we think of Paul's demonstration of love and commitment to the Philippians, it be good for us to remember how much better it would serve us if we entered into hard conversations with the same expression of commitment, the same expression of love, reminding those whom we are dealing with that they are still our beloved. They're still God's beloved. There is no cutting people off within the church. That person across the church from you that sort of raises your hackles, that kind of just rubs you the wrong way. There's no ghosting them. There's no cutting them off. That person is somebody that you are going to be worshiping with before the throne of God for all of eternity. That, that ought to bring some perspective in how we think about unity with one another. You're going to stand side by side with them one day. All we brought to light, worshiping with them. That's to change the way we begin to think about them, our commitment to them. So we need to bring that truth to mind for our own sake, to change the way we think about one another. We also need to bring this truth of others being beloved for their sake. So you bring hard words to remind your brothers and sisters that you're for them, that you love them, that you're committed to them. How much more does that lower their defenses? They don't think you're just trying to manipulate them or just get one over upon them, that you're for them. To think that as we walk through these conflicts, that we're pursuing reconciliation because our heart is bound to one another. Mind of the words of Proverbs 27.5, that faithful are the wounds of a friend and profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Yeah, sometimes friends got to bring a hard word. But we trust in Christ those hard words, those wounds, they're meant to heal. So as you begin those hard conversations, remind us that we lead them with love. Second, we let others in. It's tempting in an argument to do one of two things. One, we just retreat to our corners, we put up walls, we don't talk to people, we just kind of ice them out, and, and we just kind of ignore what's going on, stuff everything in until either we explode in anger or we just completely cut people out of our lives altogether. That, that's, that's one response that we sometimes take. We just, all right, I'm just going to ignore you, you ignore me, We'll go our separate ways. The second way that we sometimes handle conflict is that we go and, and tell everybody we can find about what's happening. 
share every juicy detail, hoping to get people onto your side so they'll see it your way, so that they'll agree with you and kind of say, oh, I can't believe they, they did that to you. And, and we're just trying to have more people on our side than on the other side so we can win the argument. We're, we're building a case within the church. And if anybody tries to, to push back on that argument, anybody tries to say, I don't think that's quite what happened. I don't think you're seeing things clearly. Then we kind of push them away. I can't believe you're on their side and, and you're, you're with them and, and you betrayed me and you stabbed me in the back. But could it be that that third party, that person who is maybe trying to push back a little bit, that, that they might have a little more objectivity in this matter, that their perception of things is maybe a little less clouded by emotion, less clouded by the hurt and pain that you feel. It doesn't mean that hurt and pain is wrong or that you shouldn't feel it, that there's real sins that are committed, but so often that hurt and pain clouds our perception of things. And, and, and those other people who, who want to speak into our lives, they might actually have a better sense of reality than we do. That our version of the story might not be the most accurate version of the story. Again, another proverb. Proverb eighteen seventeen. But the one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. How often do we think we're right? How could you think I'm wrong? Let others in to help you see things more clearly. We see here that Paul himself is entering into the fray of this disagreement with this pastoral exhortation, with a reminder to these dear sisters. He's also urging this true companion to enter into this disagreement. Now, we don't know who this companion is. We know that it was somebody that the Philippians would have known, that they understood who Paul was talking to, is likely somebody who was in Philippi, who had spent many years there ministering alongside of Paul. Some commentators think it might be Luke. Uh, but it, it doesn't matter that their identity would have been easily distinguishable to the Philippian church. And so Paul, knowing that this is a faithful brother, urges him to step in to help with this disagreement. And I think that Paul wants Iodia and Syntyche to know that he wants him to step in. He doesn't want them that to be offended that this faithful companion is sticking his nose where it doesn't belong. Again, that, how often do we treat others like that when they want to help? Paul wants to remind these sisters that he has their good in view by asking this faithful companion to enter in. It's a good word to us. We're entrenched in conflict and disagreement. We just can't quite seem to reconcile. 
that, that we need to let people in, to help heal those broken relationships. We, we don't push people away when we're all striving towards the unity that we agree is so important within the church. It's also a good reminder that sometimes us as bystanders, that we do need to enter into the fray. Again, this is not every time and not a call for us to all become gossips and busybodies and getting into every little disagreement in the life of the church. But sometimes disagreements become so entrenched, people become so stuck in their views that we do need to enter into those conflicts to bring the gospel of reconciliation to bear upon our brothers and sisters. But too often we sometimes see that need and sit on the sidelines, oftentimes because we're afraid. What if I make things worse? What if I don't know what to say or how to navigate this? What if somebody ends up feeling offended and now my relationship with them is in jeopardy? But we need to remember that sometimes the, the Lord is calling us to be the mediator between his people. To, to remind them of the gospel of peace and unity that we've been hearing about. Sometimes the Lord is calling us to step into those hard situations for the sake of your brothers and sisters. Let us not be afraid to take up that mantle when it is necessary to love God's people, to help shepherd them through conflicts. Third, Paul reminds us not to lose the mission. He tells his companion to help these women, as he says, who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Think about this for a moment. Why does Paul include that little biographical sketch of these two women? Certainly, all of the Philippian church would have known that about these women. Well, for starters, I think he's pointing out the genuineness of, of their faith. And we'll return to that in a moment. But I think he's also reminding the church and reminding these women that they're not some inconsequential members of the church. Not that any of you are inconsequential. Your pastors and elders love you all very much. But these are women who have played a large role in the life of this church that have served alongside of Paul. They had some measure of leadership opportunity in the church, whether it was reaching out to their neighbors, discipling other women, being active in prayer groups, showing hospitality. Think of our own congregation. This may not mean anything to you, uh, but dear friends with Pastor Neil, our wives have been best friends for like the last 10 years. I just think, what would happen in the life of Good Shepherd if my wife Sarah and Leandra just were at odds with each other and nobody can reconcile the two? 
life in the church would grind to an absolute halt. We see that there is so much at stake with the unity between those who are actively involved in the life of the church. At the base level, there's simply just a practicality to having your church leaders working and living in harmony with one another. But again, as some of you may know from chapter 2 in Philippians, that the need for unity extends far beyond just practical matters. That just the logistics aren't going to get handled because the two people in charge of most logistics are fighting. The call for unity extends far beyond that. Because the unity of the church and our love for one another is a shining light of the evidence of the power of the gospel to a dark and dying world. See, there is no religion. There is no club. No neighborhood organization. No team. No civic society. No government. No institution at all in the history of the world that can show the same kind of love and kindness and grace and forgiveness as the church when Christians are truly living like our Savior. Let that reality set in for a moment. We have the only true reconciling message the world will ever know. And if we as the church cannot actually live that out within the church, we are demonstrating to the world that there is an insufficiency in the gospel that we proclaim. So when the world sees that love actually being carried out, sees us living like Christ, sees us living in harmony with one another, that, that bolsters the gospel message that we proclaim. So even when the world isn't sure about all of our claims of the exclusivity of Christ and, and the need for repentance and the, the wrath of God that is coming for those who have not bowed the knee, even if they question all of that, the world cannot deny the power of the gospel at work in the lives of Christ's people. But when the church is at its worst and the world sees the infighting and the bitterness and the cynicism and the gossip, it hears the message that we proclaim about Christ and it wonders, is that even true? Does that matter one lick to these people? Again, not that our lives are what gives the gospel its power. No, it is spirit and the word that saves sinners. But our lives do adorn the gospel. It does validate our gospel message. And so for the sake of the mission of the church, Paul entreats these two women to come together. For if their fighting continues, then the work of the church will suffer, and its witness will suffer. 
So he urges them not to forget the mission. Lastly, we see that Paul calls them to agree in the Lord, or to have the same mindset in the Lord. And I think this is really the whole of the matter. If, if you were sleeping for those last three points, shame on you, but okay. Wake up. This is where the rubber meets the road. All the help that these women need, all of it is given in this reminder of whose they are in the Lord. So we must remember all that we have in Christ. We remember the way that he calls us to live. Again, we just saw that Paul reminds these dear sisters that their names are written in the book of life. What a promise that is to them. Reminding them of all that is true of them in Jesus. That they're receiving all the inheritance of heaven. That nothing can spoil that reward. Think if that is true, how much more free are we to endure a little discomfort here on earth? To be able to endure a slight disagreement when we have all of that waiting for us. So often, we as Christians believe the lie that this is all we get. This is the best it's going to be. So we need to fight like crazy to protect our comfort here on earth. Anybody threatens that comfort, then we're going toe-to-toe with them. We're not going to let them infringe upon our kingdom here on earth. What we need as God's people are better joys, are better comforts that, that can't be robbed by those we disagree with. We, we must remember that we are in the Lord and all of the rewards that come with that. We also must remember that our opponents are just as much in Christ as we are. They are just as much children of God as we are. They're God's beloved children that he is jealous to protect and care for as well. They have been bought by the blood of Christ. They too have been forgiven. They no longer stand condemned by God. And how often do we forget that reality when we have been wronged? Someone sins against us. We immediately believe that salvation is by works. And that that person who wronged us, well, they need to pay. They, they need to earn my forgiveness before I can make it right. They've got a whole lot of wrath stored up unless they start working off their debts towards me. If the blood of Christ is sufficient to pay for every sin of that brother and sister before an infinitely holy God, how much more ought that blood of Christ be sufficient to assuage our wrath against them? That, that we know that God no longer holds them as condemned. That however 
could we? We remember that our opponents are just as much in the Lord as we are. We must also remember that we are in the Lord who sees all things clearly. So there's no room for exaggeration, no room for deceit, for spinning a story to meet our ends. Like when you're recounting events of a disagreement, whether it's to yourself or to others in the church, how tempting is it to twist the narrative to meet your own ends, to maybe embellish a little bit how awful that person really was to you, all of the ways they responded and all of the, the bitterness that was in them, all, all the lack of charity that they showed you. That you make sure you point out all the ways that you were in the right. You forget to leave out the ways that maybe eh, you might have contributed to that argument. Maybe you leave out all the ways the other person has tried to make amends and to make things up to you. The ways they've tried to pursue peace. Now imagine the way you tell that story to others, the way you tell that story to yourself. Imagine telling that story to the Lord in prayer. Could you give that same recounting in good faith? Could you bring that same account of events to the God who, who already knows all that has taken place, that sees all things perfectly, that discerns the depths of every human heart, who knows our motives, who knows our thoughts. Would you approach God the same way that you approach others in the church? See, it can be a humbling thing to bring these arguments before the Lord because there's no pretense. There's no spinning the truth. There is only truth. There's no hiding. You have to be completely honest, completely transparent. And, and in doing so, in bringing these matters before the Lord, in being honest, it begins to help you see things a little more clearly. And one of the most important steps in, in resolving conflict is actually understanding that there are things that you have contributed to make things worse. To recognizing that it is not 100% on them and 0% on you. It's not 99% on them and 1% on you. It is almost never the case that they were just a terrible person and I was completely in the right and I did nothing wrong here. It's usually a mix of two sinful people being in a deep, committed relationship to one another, and, and, and sin just happens. And sometimes it happens willfully, but sometimes it just happens. There's no malicious intent, but, but we both bring our sins into these disagreements. And when we go to the Lord, when we bring these conflicts to him, it frees us frees us to, to examine ourselves rightly, frees us to repent of what we brought to the table, of the sins that we've committed, and then frees us to go to that brother or that sister and to repent 
as well. We must remember that we are in the Lord who sees all. And lastly, as we close, we remember that what we have in common with one another in the Lord far outweighs any differences that we have. Does anybody here married for a while remember those little disagreements that you had at the beginning of your marriage? Uh, I remember I learned that toilet paper goes over the roll and not under it. Uh, I learned that uh, cups in the cupboard go open side down, not up. Uh, just these, these little you know, squabbles that newlyweds sometimes have. When you had those squabbles, did your marriage make it? That's a rhetorical question because if you're still married, obviously it, it made it. But why did it make it? Well, because all those little squabbles were, were nothing compared to that new life together as husband and wife. That the joy you had in being together far outweighed any disagreements you had about toilet paper and cups. Hear Paul's words to the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 4 with that in mind. It says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you all to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit, and the bond of peace. That, that all should sound very familiar if, if you've been listening to what we've been saying about the book of Philippians. And why does Paul urge them to pursue all of this unity? Verse 4, Because there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So what Paul is showing to the Ephesians is that they have all of that in common. All of those blessings are theirs together because it's the same Lord that they worship. It's the same faith that they possess. Think about that for a moment now as it applies to life together. The thing that you value most in this world, the thing that most shapes your identity, who you are, the way you see everything else around you, the things that you hold most dear, that makes you, you as a Christian, those things are the same things that are shared with that brother or sister that you are in the conflict with. And so surely, as you are in those disagreements with one another, and it feels like we're in an impasse, I have no idea how we're going to get by it. Surely, in those moments, we are able to grab hold of those commonalities together, what we hold most dear in the gospel, that we're able to thank the Lord for that unity, that reality that we have with one another, and are able then to celebrate our joint confession 
and begin to put those little differences that we have aside. I do not want to minimize the real pain and the real hurt that can be experienced in the church at the hands of other Christians. But compared to what we have in Christ, that overshadows every detail of our life, the conflicts that we have, the disputes that we have, the hurts that we feel, are just a shadow. They're just a glimpse. They're just these tiny little pebbles in the shoe compared to what we have together in Christ. So often, all of our disagreements just loom so large in our minds. It's all we can think about. All we can feel is that pain. We forget about everything else that is true, all the things that we share together. So we have to strive and fight for clarity to remember the unity that we have, that we already possess in Jesus to help us rightly see the nature of our divisions, to help shrink them down to their proper size because we recognize how great the gospel is. Again, I I don't know what pains you come here with this morning. I I don't know what hurts you have. There may be some very deep ones. I'm almost sure of it. But I do know that if you are in the Lord, if you've held fast to the gospel, that you have everything that you need to come to an agreement and to demonstrate the unity that you already have in Christ. Let us pray. Oh God, we thank you that yes, there can be deep divisions that run in your church and we lament them. We recognize that sin is real. We recognize the the effects and impacts that it has on this life under the curse. But we also recognize that you are making all things new. That by your Son, you are undoing the curse. And you are uniting your people together. So we pray where there is brokenness that you would mend it. Where there is anger and bitterness that you would help it subside. Not in any cheap, trite sayings, but in the deep, reconciling truth of your grace. Oh Lord, we pray that you would help us cling to Christ and that the unity that that produces among God's people would be a shining demonstration of the gospel to the world and that you would help us to go forward, proclaim your goodness that the world might see and hear. I pray all of this in the name of our beloved Savior. Amen.